Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the third book in the Bible. It should be pretty easy to find. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus. Start on the table of contents, and you'll move through Genesis, then Exodus, and then Leviticus 1. And uh, it's uh, probably a section of the Bible with the whitest, cleanest pages. Uh, and um, if you want to turn and take this out of your bulletin, the sheet, that might be handy uh, to you in a few minutes as well. Leviticus. Now, with your Bibles open to Leviticus, we're going to take a brief survey this morning. How many of you, I know you don't remember every sermon you've ever heard. I don't remember every sermon I've preached, so you won't remember every sermon you've ever heard. How many of you, raise your hands, have heard a sermon from the book of Leviticus? Okay, not too bad. All right. How many of you, raise your hand, have heard a sermon series through the book of Leviticus? Oh, just a few. All right. Well, let's make it a little easier here. Um, How many of you have read the book of Leviticus? Okay, good. Now, most of you probably uh, have done that uh, reading through the Bible program. You start in Genesis, you work your way through the Bible. That's a wonderful thing to do. Uh, Leviticus is the graveyard section of that reading program the part where people die from reading through the Bible. Oh, we lost Mary Smith in chapter 8 and Bill Jeffords in chapter 12. People die. Um, If you're newer to the Bible or newer to the gospel, newer to our church, and and if you ask many people who are a little bit more familiar with this book, what the best thing about Leviticus is, the thing they will tell you is, the best thing about Leviticus is that it's easy to find. Um, it's right here at the beginning, and it's too big to really flip through. It's just, just obvious and easy here. Uh, today, what we're going to do is I have the privilege of beginning what will likely be a 12-month study of the book of Leviticus. And you might be asking yourself this morning, why? Uh, I attend a local pastor's prayer meeting. Uh, I don't go as often as I can, but when the schedule allows, I go. And a few years ago, I was there, and, and we talk about church, and we pray. And so somebody said, what are you preaching through right now? And I said, well, I'm preaching through Malachi. He said, Malachi, yes, Malachi. Well, a few months later, actually a couple of years later, the question came up again. What are you preaching through now? I said, judges. They said, judges, your poor people, do they even know there is a New Testament? Have they heard about Jesus at your church? Have you gotten there yet? I can't wait. Prayer meeting's on Tuesday. I can't wait to go this week. Um, We uh, have been talking recently about the challenges that we're going to face this year as a congregation with crowding in the auditorium. It's full here every Sunday. And uh, maybe we're going to talk next week about a building and what that would mean and what it might look like. Uh, This sermon series is actually part of the way that I want to help address the issue I anticipate that after preaching Leviticus for a year, we won't have a crowding problem anymore (laughs) in our auditorium. Hmm. Actually, I I don't think that's true. And if it is true, it won't be the book of Leviticus' fault. Uh, let's be honest here, uh, this, is, this is not going to take us long to realize that this book is far removed from us in time and culture. We're going to be talking about together some unusual things, being clean and unclean. And by that, I don't mean anything you can uh, accomplish with shampoo and soap. I'm talking about being ritually clean and unclean. 
Uh, we're going to talk about uh, rules for examining a house for mildew and whether or not you could live in that house. Those of you who are in Staten Island, this book could have been helpful over the weekend for you. We're going to spend some time talking about bodily discharges. Hmm. How can you tell a rash from leprosy and what should you do about it? We're going to talk about some specifics about sacrifices. And you're going to be tempted to maybe get lost or bored. And yet, this is, this is part of Holy Scripture. It is God-breathed. Right? comes from God's mouth. He, he spoke it. And as, as Paul tells it uh, to us, all of it, all of it is profitable. It teaches us how to live. It teaches us how to figure out what's wrong with us. It teaches us how to fix what's broken and strengthen what's whole. This is God-breathed. This book, Leviticus, actually has the highest concentration of direct quotes from God of any of the other books that Moses wrote. Look at Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called... That, by the way, is its Hebrew title, The Lord Called. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, and God starts speaking, and except for a couple of chapters here and there, the rest is God speaking. God said, God said, God said, God said, God said. He speaks this word. This comes to us from the same God who breathed out Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Or the same God who takes us into the wonderful simplicity of John. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us and we have seen His glory. Or the same God who takes us to the heights in Romans 8. I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels and the list goes on shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That same God spoke this book too. Now, and that, for us, because we value God's Word, that, that's enough for us. It's enough for us to devote our time and attention to this book. But there is more. There's actually more here to discover and to heed. More answers to the why question when it comes to reading and studying the book of Leviticus. Now, today what we're going to do is we're going to devote our time to introduction of this book. Many of you have uh, been here when we've started other books before, and you're familiar with how this is going to go this morning. My goal is to orient you to the book. I want to give you some tools to read it and perhaps appreciate it more uh, with greater discernment. We're not going to so much talk today about applying this book. That's, that's not the focus uh, I want to prepare you, though, for what is to come in the weeks and months that are ahead. And now this chart that you have in your bulletin covers some of the basic introductory issues. You've seen charts like this from me before. Let, let's talk about this for just a minute. Uh, it lists there the title of the book, Leviticus. Now, Leviticus is a Latin type of title. Um, it comes from the term Levite. And in the Bible, the Levites were the tribe in Israel responsible for worship. And since this is their instruction manual, it's called Leviticus, the book for Levites or the book for priests. Maybe you could call it that. Uh, the author here, it says, is Moses. This book identifies itself with Moses 50 times. And this is the traditional view that Moses wrote the book of Leviticus. Now, I should tell you that if you were to go to most seminaries, most colleges and universities, divinity schools in uh, the United States, actually around the world, you would learn the theory that Leviticus was not actually written by Moses. 
It's called the critical theory as opposed to the traditional theory. We won't talk about it very much at all, but the theory is that Leviticus was written about a thousand years after the Bible uh, seems to indicate, and uh, that it was written not by Moses, but by a bunch of different authors, and, and it was compiled together with the rest of the first five books of the Bible um, sometime uh, around the year 400, 300 B.C. Uh, I think that theory is wrong. It's been around for about 150 years. Uh, it's the prevailing view, but I, I think the understanding that Moses wrote it is defendable, it's reasonable, and uh, it's something to be regarded and carefully defended. Now, the date of the authorship is listed there. I listed it as 1,500 B.C. Do you remember how we think about the characters in the Old Testament? The great characters in the Old Testament, we identify Abraham with living about the year 2000, Moses living about the year 1500, and David living about the year 1000. We can be more specific, more precise with those dates, but they're, they're good enough to hang your hat on, hang, hang your thoughts on. 2000, 1500, 1000. Abraham, Moses, David. Uh, and the audience here is the Israelites who are camped near Mount Sinai. And they're about to enter the promised land and this book comes to them. You can see here too, I've divided this book into uh, five significant sections there. The first seven chapters are about sacrifices and in the weeks to come, we're going to talk about all the various sacrifices that the Bible describes. Burnt offerings, grain offerings, fellowship offerings. Then in chapters 8 through 10, it talks about the priesthood. And there's a wonderful story in chapters 8 through 10 about how the priesthood started and then how it failed almost immediately. In chapters 11 through 15, we're going to talk about that ritual purity, uh, what that means and how that works, keeping clean in God's presence or how that worked for them. Chapter 16 is about the atonement, the day of atonement, the specific, most significant, special day in Israel's calendar. And then the last section here is all devoted to the topic of holiness. How do we apply the law? How did they, how did the Israelites apply the law in their everyday life? Um, I'm suggesting this theme for us as we think about the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is a book that tells us how unholy people live in the presence of holy God. And, and I want to unfold that for you this morning a little bit. I want you to think about it um, with me. Uh, and I want to do it in three different ways. First, I want to set Leviticus in its context in, in the Bible. I'm going to set Leviticus in its context. Then I want to set Leviticus in your life. I want to talk about you and the book of Leviticus. Then this morning, we're going to talk about setting Leviticus in the church. How it fits in the Bible, how it fits in your life, how it fits in the church. Um, what's it supposed to do for us as we meet together to study it over the next uh, several months? Uh, let's first start by setting Leviticus in its context, in its biblical uh, context. Uh, the book of Leviticus is the third part uh, of a collection of books that were all written by Moses that are often called the, uh, the Pentateuch, or if this were a Hebrew Bible, the Torah. Moses wrote these first five books, uh, and they're the foundation of, of the Bible. These five books tell one story. Uh, there are smaller scenes. There's a lot of specific details. But the overall story is really quite, quite simple. It's a story that starts where all good stories start, at the beginning. In the beginning. 
It starts not by describing the main character and talking about his origins. The main character of this story is God himself. He has no beginning. It actually starts with the beginning of his work when he calls the world into existence by the word of his power. And his work culminates in the creation of creatures made in God's image who have the capacity, because they're made in God's image, to have a special relationship with Him. God puts them in a special place at the center of the world that He made, and He comes and He visits them every day, and they speak with one another, and they they talk face to face. And the Bible's consistent evaluation, what does it say about God's original creation? Over and over and over again it says, it is good, good. It's whole. It's life-producing. It's, it's peaceful. There's, there's no fear. There's no insecurity. There's no worry. There's no violence. There's no disappointment, no discouragement. Adam and Eve, the first two uh, creatures, human beings God made, they never disappointed each other. They never had an argument. They never disagreed. The dishes were always clean. If you could really truly describe what life was like, if you could really do it, you would immediately be met by a feeding frenzy of cynics. They would say to you, nothing can ever be that good. It's a fantasy. It's not a fantasy. It's the world that God made. And it's the world that Adam and Eve rejected. They rejected it for a piece of fruit. Uh, which was actually an expression of their desire. We want to live life on our own terms, not on God's terms, so we're going to eat our own, uh, we're going to decide for ourselves what's good and what's bad. And as the Bible uh, continues here in the Genesis, the story unfolds, humans assert their will over and over again. They pursue their own desires, the satisfaction of their own longings, and the continual rejection of God. And this rejection brings death, death over and over and over again. Cataclysmic death when God floods the world. And uh, uh, cataclysmic results when he confuses the language of the Tower of Babel. This is something we have still not recovered from on the planet. After the first dozen chapters or so of this, we have a new character introduced, a man whose name is Abraham. God is relentless in his goodness. He is relentless in his desire to pour out his blessing. It it flows from him. I've seen Niagara Falls dozens and dozens and dozens of times. You could just as easily stop God from pouring out goodness as you could stop with your hands the flow of water over the falls. God is, is good. He is rushingly, overwhelmingly good. And he's going to pour out his blessing. And he chooses to do it in Genesis 12 through a man named Abraham. He, he appoints Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a great family and your family is going to become a nation. It's going to become the nation of, of Israel. This is where Israel comes from, Abraham's descendants. The family uh, enters Egypt. They get reduced to slavery. And the great rescue story of the Bible is in the book of Exodus as the people exodus out of, of Egypt. God rescues them out of their own judgment and he appoints them to a new task. He says, we're going to have a covenant relationship. You are going to be, Exodus 19.6, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They would experience, like no nation before, a special relationship with God. He was going to live with them. Do you remember Adam and Eve in the garden had walked with with God in the cool of the day? Now God's going to move back to earth. 
He's going to come back and he's going to live with the Israelites. He was going to take up special residence with them. And the book of Leviticus is here to answer one very simple question. How can an unholy people live in the presence of holy God? How is that possible? It's a question that um, we have a hard time understanding and appreciating the the significance and and the weight of it. We have a hard time understanding how significantly different these things are. Holy God, unholy people. It it took maybe a month for God to tell Moses all these instructions, but they're very clear and very specific about the distinctions that must be kept between holy God and unholy people. Think with me here for a minute about that that distinction. Maybe I can illustrate it in a couple of different ways. When I was uh, a child, uh, when one of us around our dining room table, actually around our kitchen table, when one of us made a grievous violation of the basic rules of of manners, uh, slurping soup, eating salad with a spoon, wiping your mouth with shirt sleeves, Uh, We were admonished about our behavior and we were told, if you ever get invited to the White House, don't do that. (laughs) That happened at your house? Now, (laughs) obnoxious little children we were. The chances of us getting invited to the White House were very slim. I'm still waiting, frankly, for my invitation to come. We, we joked about it. We got the message. Uh, the White House is a special place because the presidency is a special office. Uh, and eating there calls for a higher level of decorum and decency than our kitchen table. How can slovenly children eat at the White House? Now, that's an infinitesimally small comparison, but you get the idea. How can an unholy people live in the presence of holy God? Uh, Maybe here's another illustration, one I I think I have used uh, recently, so uh, maybe you have heard this before. Um, Have you seen the show Hoarders on um, A&E? I've seen clips. I've never seen the entire show, but I've seen clips from it. A hoarder is someone who, due to uh, physical or mental illness or some traumatic life situation, starts hoarding possessions, and they fill their house with so much stuff that it's impossible to organize and clean, and the show takes you on a tour of some of these homes. Um, if you are a neat freak, this show would be like watching a horror movie. All right? Um, the houses, is, are, they're gray on the inside. Everything is gray because of the accumulated dirt and dust. There's, uh, the smell is horrid. There's uh, bugs and rodents. In one scene that I saw from this uh, show, they found, as they were cleaning out this house, the carcass of a dried cat in the living room. So the animal that had died in the house uh, and had never been discovered. Now, um, think about it here. What, what would it take for you, neat freak that you are, to move comfortably into one of those homes? You say there are not enough hazmat suits in the world for me to move into one of those houses. What would it take for you to to eat there or to go spend the night in one of those homes? It's another small comparison, but you get the idea. How can holy God move in with unholy people? It's a question that the book of Leviticus 
uh, is trying to answer for us. And in these chapters, Moses here is going to target four specific areas in answer to that question. He's going to talk first about, he's going to tell the people how to worship. How to worship. The holy God and the unholy people are together. How do the people worship? How are they going to offer sacrifices? What should they do uh, to cover themselves and their moral uh, unsavoriness, dirtiness? Second thing he's going to talk about here is how to live a holy life. How to live a holy life. The emphasis is going to be on external cleanliness. God dwells physically with the people, so how can they be physically pure? So we're going to talk about what Leviticus says about what to eat and what to wear and diseases and discharges. That's a physical cleanness. Third, God through Moses tells the people how to relate to one another. How to relate to one another. There is a verse from Leviticus that everybody here knows. You might not have known it comes from Leviticus. It says... Love your neighbor as yourself. Most popular verse in all of Leviticus. Leviticus is filled with information about personal relationships. Uh, Living in the presence of a holy God involves community life. So Leviticus 18 in particular is filled with information about personal relationships and what personal relating community holiness looks like. And then finally, Moses tells the people how to avoid the corruption of the surrounding nations. Israel's going to stand out from other nations, and and they're going to have to avoid becoming like them. So many of the laws that we're going to talk about are rules that God gave them uh, to help them to, to separate them from the foreign nations, the surrounding nations that are around them. Now, this is how Leviticus fits into the biblical story. It's kind of a constitution for the nation of Israel, this holy nation, the nation that God has rescued from Egypt and among whom he's going to dwell. Leviticus is actually revered. Leviticus is the first book that Jewish children would learn. God lives with us. Now, let's talk about what it means that God lives with us. Let's talk here, no, secondly, though, about how Leviticus fits into your life. Let's set Leviticus into your life here. Um, I want to think with you a little bit more about the foreignness of this book. How should you read it, this, this book that has so many unusual commands? What role is Leviticus supposed to play in a follower of Jesus Christ? We're not Jews. We don't live in the promised land. We're not part of a holy nation. How do we read this book? Um, Leviticus, I think, is crucial in laying the foundation for what the rest of the Bible says about Jesus. It, It creates in our minds and it describes things. It creates categories and describes reality so that when Jesus shows up, we have a greater understanding of Him. For example, um... Uh, the book of uh, in Jesus says that he is the sacrifice of atonement. Well, what does that mean? Leviticus tells us. Jesus says he is the temple. What, a, what is the temple? Leviticus tells us. Uh, Jesus is our great high priest. What's a great high priest? Galatians 3.24 says that the law points us to Jesus. What does it mean in the Gospels? When Jesus touches someone and they're healed, 
If you uh, were walking down the street and someone had leprosy and they touched you, you would become ritually unclean. Or if somebody was bleeding or had some sort of discharge and they touched you, you would be ritually unclean. What does it mean with the fact that when those type of people touch Jesus, he wasn't polluted, they were made clean. The holiness transferred from him to them. What does that mean about who Jesus is? Leviticus tells us. It clears that up for us. It gives us a category for understanding what happens when a holy person like Jesus touches an unholy thing or person and they're made holy. Uh, last week we, were in, uh, a, we spent a day in Manhattan uh, on, in New York City. I'm amazed. Whenever I go, you probably think this too, maybe, at the massive buildings. They're so tall. Uh, the New World Trade Center tower, it's rising into the air. I've seen it a couple times. It, it goes higher and higher. It's going to reach what 1,776 feet high in the air. In order, though, to get up that high, you have to dig a very deep foundation. They started building that building in 2006. They reached the ground level in 2008. They spent all that time on the foundation. And Leviticus is the foundation for us so that we can see uh, and really appreciate the heights of the excellency and supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's what, what uh, uh, Leviticus is supposed to do. So, the question, one of the key questions that we ask every week when we look at the book of Leviticus is this. How does this passage help me understand who Jesus is and what he has done? How does this shore up the foundation so that I can see the supremacy of Jesus? How does it help me understand who he is and what he's done? Now, there's actually a second uh, uh, question that is important uh, that I want to talk about just, just briefly here in a minute. This book, Leviticus, is what we would call in the Bible, law. You're familiar with that phrase. This is a book of law. This was the law that was given by God before Christ came in the flesh to a nation that, that would live in its own homeland. So how are we Christians, not Jews, not living in the promised land, not part of a holy nation, how are we Christians supposed to read and understand this law? <laughs> pages and pages and pages have been spilled over this, have been spilled, ink has been spilled, pages have been written and read and studied uh, to answer this question of how Christians relate to the Old Testament law. Uh, one common answer to that question is nothing. We don't relate to it at all because uh, it's the law. We're under grace. We don't follow the law at all. So that we don't have to pay attention to it at all. Another answer is that we should try to take Leviticus and Deuteronomy, another law book, and make it the law of our land. Those people are called Reconstructionists or theonomists, they think that we should try to take all the laws in Leviticus and make them the laws of our land. So if you commit adultery, we should go stone you, because that's what Leviticus and Deuteronomy call for. We should make that the, the law. Pennsylvania, violation number 26304. Let's stone you if you commit adultery. Uh, Probably the most common answer to this question about how we relate to the law is that we, we say, some people say, we follow some of it, but not all of it. Well, we follow the Ten Commandments, but not the stuff about mixing fabric together. That polycotton blend shirt you're wearing is criminal, right? According to the law. 
So uh, we we follow we don't we don't steal, we try we're pursuing uh, not stealing and and not coveting and and uh, not lying. We're, but those laws we, we ignore. Well, I think, again, uh, we have to read the Bible and the Old Testament on this side of the cross. What did Jesus say about the law? Matthew 5:17. I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill the law. So the second question that we ask is, how is this principle that's in the law fulfilled in Jesus? How does... We read Leviticus, understand what it says, and we understand what it meant to the Israelites. How is it fulfilled in Jesus? And we're going to find some basic things. We're going to find some regulations for the past that Jesus did away with. He fulfilled them by doing away with them, offering the sacrifices. We don't offer sacrifices anymore because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. That regulation has been fulfilled in him. Uh, Sometimes we'll find principles for all time. There are things that Jesus repeated that he told us, love your neighbor as yourself, for example. And then we're going to find some images that are transformed for the present. Um, We have no physical temple where God dwells, but now Paul says we are the temple. We read this in fulfillment of Jesus Christ. You're going to see that clearer as, as time goes by. How does this principle, how is this principle fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Now, there's one more issue that I want to discuss with you this morning as we, we uh, look at the book of Leviticus. I want to set Leviticus in the church, set it in the church. Studying this book is for us to be a celebration of the holiness of God. We're going to sing every song about God's holiness that I possibly can find. I'm looking for more of them. Uh, there is in this book the highest concentration of the word holiness in all of the Bible. God says that over and over again about himself, I am holy, and because he is holy, he is to be celebrated. Now, what does holy mean? The word holy in the Bible basically means, many of you know this, set apart. That's what the word holy means. Set apart. It means unique, special, distinct. God is other. And Leviticus is going to focus our attention on four ways in which God is other, in which he's separate from us. Uh, First, he is living. When the Bible says that God is holy, Leviticus means, means he is living. That is He is the one true God. He's the only true God. He's the life-giving God who is eternal. No other God exists. All people who have ever lived will someday acknowledge the supremacy of the God of the Bible because in contrast to the imaginary gods of all nations and all peoples, this is the one true living God. Second, He is powerful. He is Powerful. Why should the people revere him? Because by the word of his power, he rescued them from Egypt. He brought them out with his mighty hand. He defeated the Egyptian so-called gods, and he brought the greatest army in the world to its knees. He put the wealth of that nation in the pockets of its slaves, and he set them free. God is uniquely powerful and thus worthy of our adoration. Third, he's holy in the fact that he is good. He's good. Now, this is what we usually think of when we think of holiness. Um, We should talk about the fact that God is separate from sin. 
I'm using the term good because it's a positive way to say that. It's a little bit easier to grasp. It is in God's nature to do goodness. He is good. He, he doesn't lie. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't use people. He doesn't abuse people. He's not tricked. He's not lazy. He's not manipulative. Um, he, he doesn't break His promises. He's not forgetful. He doesn't play favorites. God is, is good. He's, he's good. He's holy. Finally, it means He is beautiful. He is beautiful. It's not something that we usually think about when we think about holiness. It's another way in which God is unique. He's uniquely beautiful. If you've read through the Bible, you've probably come to Psalm, 19, Psalm 119. If you've ever read Psalm 119, Psalm 119 is a song that focuses our attention on the Bible. And over and over again, this mystifies me sometimes, frankly. Over and over again, the author of Psalm 119 says, Oh, your word, it's lovely. Your law is beautiful. Your commands are my joy and delight. And I, I read that sometimes and I think to myself, what version of Leviticus has he been reading? The... These laws seem strange and foreign and weird. Why does the psalmist say, your law is my delight, it it makes me happy, it satisfies me? Why would he say that? What he's doing in Psalm 119 is is acknowledging that there is a beauty and a wholeness to God's word and God's plans uh, that's attractive and pleasing and satisfying. Do you, do you remember uh, trying to buy a house? Some of you, maybe you're in that process right now. Or looking for an apartment. Oh. You look at lots of different houses. Maybe you consider lots of different apartments. And you find things. You find sometimes horrifying things, right? That's the ugliest wallpaper I have ever seen in my whole life. Right? Um, those bedrooms are so small. That basement smells. The floor is, is uneven. And then, in, in your house search, maybe you're fortunate to find, does this ever exist, right? You find the perfect house. You find the house that is just right for you. Um, it, it has everything you want. It pleases you more than you ever thought possible. It's location, it's lot, it's fixtures. It's just, that would be a rare house, right? Not many have that experience of finding the perfect house. The Israelites, though, when they received God's word, they, they knew where the Canaanites lived. They had seen Canaanite homes and Canaanite religion. They knew what that was like. They had seen Egyptian homes and Egyptian religion. They knew what it was like to serve the Egyptian gods. They get Leviticus, what it means to serve the God of the Bible, and they say, this is the perfect house. This is just where I want to be. It's better than anything else that's out there. It's better than any, any place that we could possibly live. Living in this law, oh, it's going to be great. Now, you might not be house shopping. And you don't live in the same tents that the author of the, 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 the people who first received Leviticus live. You don't, you don't live there, but, but trust me, if you did, you would know how good this is. How beautiful this is. How, how, how wonderful and you would know how much this is, is home. The point of our study over the next several months is not going to be, though, to admire just the house 
we're after the architect. We, we want to see the beauty of the designer, the one who built it. And we'll do it rightly if at the end of 12 months we say with, with greater joy and with fuller depth, oh, he's holy, he's holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are uh, on the cusp here of this great study of this book, um, your book, the book you spoke to your people. And, and Father, you are well aware of our tendencies. We want uh, immediate gratification and immediate understanding, and we are not easily inclined toward hard things that will require thinking. Father, we are after the diamonds in your word, so give us the strength and perseverance to dig. Uh, Give us uh, wisdom for this uh, uh, house hunt that we're on. Uh, We want to know the architect of this law. Would you, in our congregation, cultivate within us awe at your holiness and your greatness? Give us the ability, we pray, to focus and the longing to hear as we look into what these chapters say about, about you and, and about your Son, the Lord Jesus. Focus our attention, we pray, that we might uh, be whole, fulfilled, satisfied people who build our lives around your great name. Do these things for us, we pray. You say that... All of this word is yours and it's profitable for us. Our faith and our confidence are in that promise that you made. We pray these things together in Jesus' name saying, Amen.